This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're celebrating Father's Day with the most powerful father stories we could find. And this next story comes from Stephen Rosiniak, a former police officer from New Jersey who shared his story in the terrific book Chicken Soup for the Soul, Thanks Dead, which you can buy at chickensoup.com. That's chickensoup.com. And he graciously recorded it for us. Here's Stephen. I still remember the sounds of my dad beginning his day, the ringing of his alarm clock, the running water as he shaved, the coffee maker, and the rattling of the cupboards and dishes in the kitchen. The sounds of leather straps against cowhide told me he was lacing up his work boots while his coffee was cooling. His quick breakfast was followed by the thud of the kitchen door closing, his old pickup coming to life, and the crunch of gravel under tires as his truck left our driveway. Only then would I tiptoe downstairs, grab his still warm mug, fill it with milk, and add a couple spoonfuls of sugar, just like him. While my pretend coffee was pretend cooling, I would lace up my pretend work boots, Ked's high-top sneakers. After consuming the horrible milk and sugar concoction with coffee grinds floating on top, I'd quietly sneak outside and climb on my bicycle, now magically transformed into a truck. As gravel crunched beneath my two wheels, I'd ride off to the pretend house I was building. In the make-believe world of my four-year-old existence, I wanted to be like him. After all, He was more than just my dad. He was my hero. I suspect that the vast majority of young children view their fathers, as I did, in awe. A real-life superhero able to do anything. During my early years, there was nobody bigger, stronger, or more important than dad. At the end of his workday, when he'd come home, he'd pick me up rub his day-old whiskers against my giggling face, and then launch me into the air above his head. The thrill of momentary flight, coupled with the knowledge that his strong arms and calloused hands would always be there to catch me and keep me safe, remained the metaphor for all he would become to me. As I grew older, his hero status began to diminish as my world expanded. I started seeing him as a man with foibles, just like the rest of us mere mortals. I also began seeing less of him as my life took me in different directions. But on occasion, our paths did cross as he coached my baseball team or volunteered with my scout troop. Sometimes, we'd even see each other across the table during dinner. I was entering my teenage years, and at the time, I was certain it was my dad who was changing and losing ground as my hero. By the time I'd reached my 20s, his hero status had been fully restored. It remained a comfort and a blessing to know that no matter where my life took me, his strong arms and calloused hands would always be there to catch me and keep me safe should I fall. By the time I married, this hero status was cemented, but he'd become more than just my dad and my hero. He'd become my friend and would remain so for the rest of his life. When my own son Michael was seven, 
he completed a classroom handout for Father's Day. His fill-in-the-blank answers to the incomplete questions afforded me a peek into the state of our father-son relationship. To the question, my dad is special because, he wrote, he cares for me and listens to me. I was moved. I'd like to make him smile by, his answer, doing my best at school. I was pleased. He noted that I looked at the things he did and that I taught him how to catch a baseball. But one answer puzzled me as much then as it does today. To the question, my dad is as nice as, he wrote, a fish. I was confused. I asked him what he meant, and he just smiled and gave me a hug. He never did explain his answer, but his hug required no explanation. A few years later, he had to compose a short piece about someone who was his hero. Many of his classmates picked sports figures, celebrities, and cartoon characters to write about. Michael picked me, and so it goes, like father, like son. I'll forever remain thankful for having been the fortunate recipient of my dad's love and friendship, and can only hope that as Michael's teenage years are winding down, he will feel the same about me. If he does, I'll promise to do my best to live up to that honor and to remain as nice as a fish, whatever that means. And you've been listening to Stephen Rossiniak. And again, he's a former police officer from New Jersey. And he shared his story in the terrific book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Thanks, Dad, which you can buy at chickensoup.com. And let's face it, it's the most important relationship for boys is the father. And that's why we're spending time on Father's Day. But it's important for girls, too, and we're covering both of those. But we can all agree if there's one central problem in America that could, that could change America, it's fixing the fatherless problem. Because when there are no fathers in homes, my goodness... Well, we know the result. And this is no slam on single moms doing their best to do what they do. My wife had a single mom, five husbands, five guys left. Nobody helped. It left a wound and a hole in my, my wife's heart forever, not having a dad. Again, not a slam on her mom. She loved her mom. Her mom did the best she could. But no fathers, my goodness, real wounds. And then crime, incarceration, sexual abuse. All these things go up multiple fold. And that's why we talk about Father's Day here on this show, because my goodness, listen to, listen to the story that Stephen told and imagine his life without his dad. It's unimaginable. Again, Stephen Rossiniak's story, a Father's Day story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're dedicating the whole show today to fathers. Not every father, by the way, is actually a child's biological parent. And we're going to be digging into 
many different ways people are fathers to children. There are stepfathers, uncles, mentors, coaches, you name it. Lots of men step into the breach for deceased or absent or inadequate biological fathers. One man who's taken this to an extraordinary level is one of my personal heroes, John Croyle. John was a world-class football player for Coach Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. But he had a different calling in life than playing in the NFL. Right out of college, John started the Big Oak Ranch, a Christian home for children needing a chance. Over the decades, John, his bride, their children, and the house parents at Big Oak Ranch have taken in and raised over 2,000 children abandoned by their biological parents. And by the way, John has some extraordinary children. His son, Brody, played and quarterbacked at the University of Alabama and then went to the NFL and played with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's now back at the ranch. And John's beautiful daughter, who is a world-class athlete herself, a basketball player, is at the ranch too, and she's running the school there and running it the way you'd imagine a coral would run things. Well, here's John sharing a story from a few years back, a tragic story, but one that really shows men how to be real fathers. Five years ago, phone call. Hello? Second one there was call me. I said, what's up? He said, where are you headed? I said, work. He said, I know where two kids are. I said, okay. Where are they? First question in the Bible is, where are you? I figured if that's God's first question, it might not be a bad one for me to ask. So I said, where are they? He said, I arranged me. I went to the steel truck stop in Steel, Alabama. I walked in, and their corner's a round table with this woman, her sister, and two small children. I walked up. She said, are you him? I said, I guess. I'm the only him here. And she said, you that guy that I see on TV that gives kids chances. I said, yes, ma'am. That's what we do. Well, here's my boy. He's 11. He just got back for three weeks to tour of Florida with some friends of mine. Here's my little girl. She's 10. She's, she didn't go to Florida. She visited a friend of mine every other weekend in Anniston. And I looked at the kids, and I've done this a long time. And I can spot an orphan, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I can also spot a child that's been abused. And I looked at them, and they have what we call shark eyes. Dead, empty, lifeless eyes. And I said, how you doing? And then it hit me. She sold them on the internet to pedophiles. And I said, I want y'all to listen to me. I have four promises. I love you. I will never lie to you. I'll stick with you till you're grown. There's boundaries. Don't cross them. The girl went to the girl's ranch. The boy went to the boy's ranch. A month later, the little girl's in the van riding down the uh, Interstate 59 with her house dad. We built a 5,400 square foot home. We put a godly couple in the home. They would give them eight kids and they raise them up. Just old school raise them up stuff. And it ain't rocket science. And she tugged on her house dad's sleeve. He said, what, baby? She said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, what? You really love me? Can I sidebar a moment? Every child in your care asks that question every morning. Dad, will you love me if I get pregnant? Dad, will I still be your boy if I get a DUI? I still going to be your boy. You still going to love me. They ask it every day. If I screw up, are you still going to come get me? (laughs) 
That's the time you play like God. You go get them no matter what. Because that's what real men do. When they were sitting there and the dad said, Why, baby? She said, I need to tell you something. She started wringing her hands. She said, Do you remember? Do you remember those two men I told you about? He said, Yeah. They really hurt me. Once they were hurting my brother, and he was screaming, and he was bleeding, and I was kicking them, and I was hitting them, trying to make them stop, and they wouldn't stop. Then they went and got the camera, and they hurt us all over again. And then they tied us to, taped us to a chair, and they, they made us watch them do ugly things to our mama. I ain't never told nobody. When I found out, I took off the school, I picked her up, and I hugged her for about three minutes, I backed away from her and I said, do you remember those four promises I made to you? She said, about loving me? I said, yeah. She said, yes, sir, I remember those. I said, you get one extra promise. And if you want to put my life down into one sentence, this is it. I took her face in my hands. I said, as long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you like that again. First words out of our mouth, thank you. Nope. Appreciate it. Nope. First words out of our mouth, would you go tell my brother? Even then, she had it, whatever that it is. Can't define it, but she had it. I found the boy. I put him in my truck. I looked at him. I said, I know. He said, you do? He thought I knew him and three boys were smoking out behind the barn. <laughs> Sometimes you just be real quiet. You'll learn a whole lot more than asking 10 million questions. And then when I said, no, that's not it. God, I can't believe I told you. But anyway, <laughs> I said, no, your sister told me. When I said that, his hands instantly started shaking, his lips started quivering, his eyes filled with tears. He just hung his head. I said, do you want to talk about it? And I'll never forget his words. I can't. I said, look at me, boy. As long as I breathe, no one's ever going to hurt you again. Now, fast forward to a little over two years ago. We're in South Alabama. We're deer hunting. We're in a tree stand. He's 13 years old, never been on a deer hunt. I'm teaching him, trying to. We're sitting there. He drops the binoculars in the tree stand. He drops the gun. Now, those of you that don't hunt, deer can hear real good. <laughs> then he, where are the deer? I said, they're about eight miles down that road. You know, right over there, you could see them running. The whole herd was running out the valley. So anyway... I said, look, just take the binoculars and see if you can see something. So he took binoculars. He's going, <gasps> now I'm going to be honest with you. I said to myself, there's no way in Hades he sees a deer. There ain't no way. He's going, there's a cow. Can we shoot it? <laughs> I said, we're not hunting cow, boy. So then I said, okay, just keep looking. 30 minutes later, the deafest, dumbest doe walks out. She didn't have any eardrums. She came out and somebody had spilled some corn out there or I mean, some stuff. <laughs> but anyway, she was munching on the corn. <laughs> then he gets ready, to, gets ready to shoot. And I said, somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> and then we loaded the gun. <laughs> you know, he missed. Of course he missed. No one had ever taught him. He missed the mark because no one showed him. He fell on the floor of the tree stand. 
He stared at the hardwood, um, at the plywood. His face was just like his eyes were wide open and the plywood splinters right here and he's just staring. And then once again, it's one of those moments, a wall hit me. When he missed his whole life, he had been told he was sorry, worthless, no count, piece of human garbage. And when he missed, he proved everybody right. What a child hears repeatedly, they eventually believe. I picked him up. I said, look at me. He said, yes, sir. I said, no, look at me. Yes, sir. I said, the neat thing about God is he always lets you reload. And that deer ain't moved yet. <laughs> when the bullet went over that deer's head, she threw her head up and she was so stupid, she turned sideways to make sure we had a better shot. <laughs> so the second time, he relaxed. He comes in here. He drops that dough. I wish you'd seen him drag that dough into camp. He swole up. The dough weighed more than he did. I said, you want help? You, you just carry the gun in the bucket. I got the deer. He comes dragging it in. The reason he was so proud is that morning when I said, this day, you're the man. This day, you're feeding your family. This day, you're taking care of your little sister. This day, you are a man. And what a story, folks. What a voice. What an American voice. And now you know why John Coyle is my hero. And if you met him, well, he'd be yours. And you kind of just did meet him. A father to 2,000-plus children, folks. The phone rings. John Coyle answers it. He steps in. No questions asked. No questions unanswered. Love, always, at the end of of that phone line. Love, a home, a family. And that's John Coyle's story, the Big Oak Ranch's story, in the beautiful town of Gadsden, Alabama. All of these Father's Day stories, a special celebration of Father's Day here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories in our special Father's Day edition, and now it's time for me to talk a bit about my own father. I wrote a piece in Newsweek about him and a thing I called the father privilege. Turning boys into men is a dad's job. That was the title. Indeed, it may be the greatest privilege no one in America is talking about. 
the father privilege. I am one of the privileged ones. Growing up, my dad was very present. He provided for us, put a roof over our heads, put food on the table, and he expected things of us. He expected us to do our best, to be good students, and good people. My parents got married right after dad graduated college, but they never took time to be a married couple. There were always kids. By the time he was 30, he had four of us to take care of. Was he ready for all of it? Well, couples didn't ask that question back in the 1950s, and they were probably better off. No matter how long we delay such things, we're never ready. I remember as a kid looking at pictures of him before he was the man he would become. He looked like a grown-up even in high school, as did his peers. Why did he sacrifice so much for us? I learned as I got older that calling what he and my mom did a sacrifice would have irritated them. They were doing what people did. No one back then thought postponing adolescence into their 30s was an option. They started things, started their lives, started families, started careers. One picture from his wedding is my favorite. The young groom grinning as he watches his bride cut their wedding cake, celebrating on a rooftop at a neighborhood building. No wedding planners, no exotic honeymoons. It was a drive to Niagara Falls and back to life. After he left the Air Force, where he served as an officer training future officers, he started teaching history and coaching high school basketball in northern New Jersey. He became a department head, then an assistant superintendent, and one day, he was the boss. There was a sense of inevitability about that outcome. Some people, well, they're just born to run things. What were his dreams? The child of immigrant parents, he didn't think much about such things. His generation was too practical. They didn't sit around talking about how to change the world. They were too busy trying to change their world. My dad's life was a slice of the American dream. A rental house every summer at the Jersey Shore. Family night at the drive-in movies. A pool in the yard and a basketball court over the garage. But he didn't just provide materially for us. He was always there for us, too. He was an old-school dad. There wasn't a lot of hugging or praise. On the rare occasion he said something nice, it meant something. Not bad, he would say after a good effort. If it was a particularly good effort, he would say, not bad, and then repeat it. He wasn't a man who looked back on life with regret. He had little use for taking his own temperature. He had a temper. I was afraid of him, but not physically. I was afraid to let him down, afraid to disappoint him. When he yelled, it made me tremble. His temper had that kind of power. I remember the fights he had with my mom. I never understood them or what they were about. But what kid does? My parents probably didn't know what those fights were about either. Sometimes I thought one of them would just call it quits, but always. The next day would come, and they carried on. As time passed, my dad's temper faded. As my dad got more comfortable in his own skin... He was better able to navigate his own emotions, and he got calmer. Meet him today, and you'd call him laid back. As I got older, I came to appreciate the small things, the daily habits and rituals that my dad shared with my mom. Those rituals and rhythms of life gave me a great sense of stability, a great sense that relationships can last, that love can last. The coffee he started for my mom every morning, the daily run to the supermarket, the evening coffee out by the pool, listening to WOR, 
on a transistor radio. The early dinners at a local bar for pizza. The card games, which Mom always seemed to win. The habits of love were there for me to observe and imitate. The love I witnessed didn't look like anything I ever saw in the movies. It looked like something better. Something within reach. The constancy, the consistency, the mutual understanding. None of it was terribly exciting. But it was terribly good for me. And it was very good for my parents. Quote, The most important thing a father can do for the children is love their mother, said Father Theodore Hesburgh, former president of Notre Dame University. My dad wasn't a religious guy, but he would agree with Hesburgh on that point. And he would agree with theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this in a letter to his niece before her wedding. Quote, It's not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that will sustain your love. That lesson may be the greatest my dad taught me. Marriage sustains love. I sometimes think of the writers who've written about fathers. Most, I suspect, had bad ones, or only remembered the bad things about their dad. Bruce Springsteen once said, quote, I haven't been completely fair to my father in my songs, treating him as an archetype of the neglecting, domineering parent. Anyone who knows Bruce Springsteen's music knows the ominous role his father played in his catalog. It was the birth of Springsteen's own son that prompted a truce between the two. Springsteen tells the story of his dad showing up at his door and the two men sharing a beer. His father said to him, I wasn't so good to you, son, Springsteen recalled in his autobiography. And I said back to my dad, Dad, you did the best you could. It changed our relationship immediately, Springsteen recalled about that encounter. It was a lovely gift. Well, my dad gave me lovely gifts. He taught me how to tie a tie, throw a spiral. He taught me how to think through problems, see both sides of an argument. He taught me the importance of hard work and that talent was overrated. He encouraged me to take risks but not be reckless. He taught me how to play blackjack and poker. He taught me how to read, lead, and learn. But he really taught me how to play basketball. Most importantly, he taught me the importance of simply sticking things out. Finish what you start, he often told me. Much has been written in academia about white privilege, but the privilege that matters most in life, I've come to believe, is the father privilege. I know the advantages my father passed along to me, I would not be the man I am today, the husband or father, without his example. He's 86, and he is still influencing me. Turning boys into men is no duck walk. It's something the state can't do, or a social worker. And it's something mothers can't do alone, as hard as they may try, and as good and heroic as they are. Fathers are uniquely qualified to do this work, and uniquely situated. Dads play a critical and underappreciated role in their daughters' lives, too. And though few people in the media or academia are talking or writing about it, fatherlessness may be the single biggest social problem in America. Rates of sexual abuse, academic and discipline problems, incarceration rates, gang activity, and even poverty itself all increase dramatically when a dad is not present in a child's life. The hole it leaves in the hearts of sons and daughters is underappreciated and devastating. So to all the good dads out there, not perfect dads, just good ones, thank you. Not enough is written about you, the men in this country, taking on the responsibilities and pleasures of fatherhood. 
and the disappointments, too. Your steadiness and steadfastness may not make for good fiction, but it makes for a good life. Your effort, and you too, Dad, to shape the next generation of husbands and fathers is simply the most important work there is in America. My story, my own dad's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories in our special Father's Day celebration and we love to hear from daughters and today we're going to hear from Shiloh Carroza whom I got to know while teaching at Hillsdale College a couple of years ago I was there doing a two-week seminar on storytelling I've been doing it ever since and I submitted that every student there had a story and I was seeking them out personal something about their town their family whatever And Shiloh was a bit reluctant to talk, and she looked a little out of it. I was told she was such a good student, and I was a little worried. And so after the class, I asked her if she wouldn't mind staying. I asked her if everything was okay, and if she wanted to opt out, that was fine too. And she told me that she had just learned that her father was dying. We talked for a bit, and then I said, well, maybe you'd want to write about that. And she wasn't sure. She told me that her dad had just performed a a sermon. He's a pastor at his church about dying. And I thought, well, maybe you should talk about that. Why don't you talk to your dad? She did. She came back and did a beautiful piece two years ago for Father's Day. Well, since then, her dad passed. And so Shiloh, well, in her heart, she felt like she needed to redo her Father's Day piece. And here it is. For most of us, Father's Day is a day of celebration. For some of us, It's a day of remembering. This is the second Father's Day that I will spend remembering my dad. We all know growing up that for most of us, there will come a day when we have to say goodbye to our parents. But nothing can prepare you for the day your father is rushed to the hospital because it looks like he's having a stroke. And nothing can prepare you for the phone call from your mother telling you it's not a stroke, it's a brain tumor. Nothing could have prepared me for the two weeks I spent alone in the house while my dad underwent the first of several surgeries. Or for the next two years that we saw him gradually lose his speech and grow quiet as the cancer took over his brain. There are some memories from those last two years I would rather forget. The things that are still too raw to talk about. The words I failed to say when he most needed to hear them. The process of watching the strongest man I knew grow weak and dependent. The moments in which I found myself doing things for him that he did for me when I was little. The sound of the funeral home staff wheeling the body out of the house at 3.30 one night. The feeling of emptiness that came after the funeral ended and everyone went home. And we were once again left 
with a quiet house and an empty chair. Maybe someday I'll be glad for those memories, but not now. But thankfully, Dad left my family with plenty of good memories from the 19 years I knew him, the 22 years my brother knew him, and the 31 years my mom shared with him. When I look back at all the memories I have, it's hard to pin down one characteristic that explains him or sums up who he was. He was the dad who took us everywhere with him, who would teach us more in a car ride than all our school books combined. He was the dad who put up with the mosquitoes on our family camping trips because, number one, he knew the rest of us liked the outdoors, and number two, he knew there would be s'mores. He was the dad who always paused the movie in the middle of the best scene to analyze the plot out loud with us. He was the dad who consistently quizzed us to see if we remembered who wrote his favorite hymn, And Can It Be, before belting it out in church. And in case you were wondering, it was written by Charles Wesley. He was the dad who stayed up into the early hours of the morning with us, talking about anything we wanted, and still managing to teach us something in the process. He was also the dad who sat us down one day and told us that his time was limited, that the tumor the doctors found would give him two years, possibly less. Dad never cried unless either someone had died or unless he found himself overwhelmed by the weight of some profound truth. He was crying when he looked my brother and me in the eyes and told us, you are my best investments. I don't think I grasped what that meant until the funeral when hundreds of people from all walks of life approached me and told me how dad had impacted them. In fact, I still don't fully grasp what that means. It's like all my life dad was planting seeds in me, and some are still in the process of breaking through the soil, but some of them have blossomed, and I recognize them now as pieces of him. My need to talk using my hands, my intuitive drive to find patterns in the world around me and make sense of details, my tendency to overanalyze just about everything. I could go on naming personality traits ad infinitum, but that isn't the most important thing Dad gave me. The most important thing he gave me was the very thing that made me get out of bed the next morning after he died. There is nothing like waking up the next morning and knowing that the world you will wake up to for the rest of your life is one without your father. And that morning, along with many others, the only thing that could make me open my eyes was the knowledge that no matter what had happened, or was still happening, or would happen, God had it all under control. And that was what Dad taught me. But it still hurts. There are plenty of memories that crop up again and again, no matter how much I try to think only of the positive. Because of my dad's forgiveness and faith in Christ, I know where he is now. But that can be hard to remember when the last image burned in your mind is of a body. 
Death may not be the end, but death is ugly. And for the time, it feels so permanent. For the first year after his death, I realized I kept expecting Dad to come back. To hear him pick up on the other end of the phone. To walk downstairs and see him at his desk in the basement. In some ways, I don't think this will ever go away. I might not expect to find him around the corner, but I keep looking for him, waiting for some kind of reunion. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I won't find that reunion here. Ecclesiastes tells us God has set eternity in our hearts, and I think that ache, that tug that grief causes, is there to remind us that we won't find what we're looking for on this side. What we're ultimately looking for isn't just a reunion with people we've lost. In Psalm 73, the writer prays to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The best thing about my dad was that he didn't leave me just longing to have him back. I do want him back. But he helped me see what I really want is so much more. He gave me a picture of God's love as father and maker and friend, and however much I want to be with dad, being with God someday will be that much better. Several months after his diagnosis, Dad gave a talk at a local church to share his journey with them and challenge them to think about their own lives and how they thought about eternity. To quote him, he ended by telling them this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't even imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. Dad, you are now a part of that other side. It still hurts, and I still miss you, and that isn't going to change. But on the best days, I catch myself thinking how I can't wait to tell you about everything that's happened here since you left. And on the worst days, even then, you're only a few more Father's Days away. And you've been listening to Shiloh Carosa, And what beautiful words. My goodness, there's not a dad listening who wouldn't hope for such eloquence, such beauty from a daughter, and such strength and courage. And by the way, what a way to be described. Dad taught us more in a car ride than all the school books combined. He was the dad who stayed up into the early hours talking to us about anything we wanted. He's the dad who told us his time was limited. You are my best investments. And our kids are, no matter what the culture is telling you, no matter what anybody's telling you. 
Our kids, our children are our best investments. Shiloh Carroza, Hillsdale College's finest, a place where they teach all the beautiful things in life, all the things that matter in life. And my goodness, it's evidenced here in a beautiful piece of writing. Shiloh Carroza's story, her Father's Day story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to tell sports stories on our show and today we have one of the best University of Tennessee basketball coach Pat Summit one of the greatest coaches to ever step foot on a court or field anywhere during her 38 years of coaching all of her players graduated from college and she impacted those around her far beyond the basketball court and today faith brings us her story When I played for her, I thought, man, this lady's crazy. She, she's crazy. And I'd go out of the gym going, I, I, I don't think I can do it. Pat said, it's a lot easier to start tough and get nicer than it is to start nice and get tougher. What do you not understand about passive every time? I didn't mind holding people accountable. I knew I had a lot to learn, but I also knew that coaching was my passion. That was Pat Summit coach of the University of Tennessee Lady Vols. Her blue eyes and strong stare made her players simultaneously love her and fear her. Pat Summit's name has become synonymous with women's basketball. She was born Patricia Sue Head on June 14, 1952 in Clarksville, Tennessee. Pat took the game to the highest level that it's ever been. People may not have known as much as they should have known about women's basketball, But if you said Pat Summit, then everybody knows, oh, she's the coach at Tennessee who always wins national championships. So there are a lot of sports out there that are only defined by the people that are running the most important programs. Uh, You may not know every coach in every sport, but in women's basketball, every kid that ever played, every coach that ever coached, I think knew what Pat Summit was doing, who she was, where she coached. And you know what, Uh, at the end, Uh, they're going to forget the wins, they're going to forget the losses, they're going to forget how many championships you won. They're not going to remember conference titles. None of that's going to stick. What's going to stick is when they say, women's basketball, Pat Summit. Those two things will never be separated. That was Gino Oriema, coach of the University of Connecticut Huskies. They had one of the most tense competitive relationships in women's college basketball. Gina once said of Pat that familiarity breeds contempt. But his comments go to show that in the end, his respect for her and the sport went beyond their rivalry. Here is Mike Krzyzewski, the head coach of Duke, talking about Pat. One of the great coaches of any sport. 
you know, let alone you know, basketball, uh, was Pat Summit. I can remember uh, early in my career, Sam Newton, uh, one of the great guys in, in men's college basketball, you know, wanted to hire her to be a men's coach and said, look, you should go to one of her practices. She knows how to coach. And she, she really put women's basketball out there. In other words, uh, what she did with recruiting, accomplishment, championships, really set the foundation for where women's basketball is in our country right now. You know, you, if you wanted to really get the start, that's where you will go to Pat Summit. And then it started from there. It started from there. And obviously, you know, today, you, you know, Gino's done an unbelievable job at Connecticut. But that would not have been without Pat. Pat Summit worked as a grad assistant for the UT Lady Vols. But then, the head coach unexpectedly stepped down. And from 1974 to 2012, besides her son, basketball and the UT Lady Vols were her life. Here's Marcia Sharp, former head coach of University of Texas Tech, talking about Pat's influence on the sport. I don't suppose that there's really the right words to talk about uh, her legacy or what she meant to women's basketball. When you get a job when you're a grad assistant and turn it into something like she did, it's the most remarkable story in sports in so many ways, and particularly for uh, women in sports at that time. Title IX had just become law, and um, it was kind of a perfect storm when she came along and started that program. This little Southern girl changed the presence of women's basketball and women in sports in general. We had a dairy farm. I just remember milking cows 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. I don't think my grandfather knew what to do with my mom. He just assumed, hey, I can just treat her like the boys, and that's what she became. We were strict on him. Of course, he was a more stricter than I was. You know, it generally goes that way. My father, he was the one that probably inspired me the most. Times he challenged me and said, I don't know if you'll ever be able to do this. And, of course, that's all I needed to hear. I don't think that she planned to be a pioneer, but I think that she was comfortable being the pioneer. She didn't smash through glass ceilings. She was a glass cutter. You know, she was sort of etch away, you know, at the glass ceiling until she popped out a big old square. We have to have more television exposure. That's going to be significant. Summit began her coaching career before women's basketball was an NCAA sanctioned sport. And just two years after Title IX came into play. The legislation that created more athletic opportunities for women. Her personal basketball career was played from 1970 to 1974 at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Pat Summit was then in the Olympic Games in 1976. She co-captained the United States women's national basketball team as a player in the inaugural women's tournament. They won the silver medal. She then returned to the Olympics in 1984 as head coach and led the U.S. women's team to the gold medal. She was the first in U.S. Olympic basketball history to play on and coach medal-winning teams. She didn't begin as a legend, but she certainly became one. And when we come back, more 
of the life and story of Pat Summit. And she was born on this day in history in 1952. Are these days in histories, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More on Pat Summit's life after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of the life of Pat Summit. We heard about how she played on and coached medal-winning Olympic basketball teams, and now we're about to hear more of her amazing life story. Pat Summit won an enormous percentage of her games that she coached. But of course, you can't win them all. Here she recalls what her first loss felt like. I remember the first loss probably more than the first win. Um, and we played uh, Mercer University. They were good. And I knew after the game that I had, um, I had not, I just didn't do a good job. You know, and I, I was young and I, I just wasn't experienced enough uh, or confident enough probably. Um, and I remember calling home. And my mother answered the phone, and we were chit-chatting, and she goes, Trish, how you doing? I go, doing great, Mom. Never even asked me about the game. Probably didn't even know we were playing. Or if she did, she probably just forgot about it, because she she never was into sports. And I said, "Um, is Dad there? And uh, she said, yes. And I said, "Um, is it okay if I talk to him? Because he he didn't like talking on the phone much. And she said, yes. So she handed him the phone, and I've never heard him say hello. He said, all right. Well, I was so nervous because I knew, you know, he knows how competitive we all are, and he's competitive. And and I said, hey, Dad. And he goes, did you win? And I said, no, sir. We lost. Long pause. And I didn't know what he was going to say other than you need to get out of coaching. But he said, um, so you lost? I said, yes, sir. He said, let me tell you one thing. You don't take donkeys to the Kentucky Derby. You better get you some race horses. And he hung up. <laughs> but I knew what he was saying to me. And it, it, it really shaped me in terms of my philosophy to understand that you win in life with people. You know, it's not about me. I've never scored a basket for the University of Tennessee. You know, and I'm starting my 36th year. It's all about the people you surround yourself with and what they bring to the court, to the game, and uh, to understanding that it is a team concept and they have to do it together. Pat Summit's personal life was filled with determination as well. Before she had her son Tyler, she endured six miscarriages. I think the, the one achievement in my life that means the most to me is the birth of my son Tyler. He's just a gift from God and he's just been He's just been so special in so many ways um, because as much as I've taught him, I think he's probably taught me even more. It's so special, you know, 
all the things I hear about my mom, you know, all the, the championships, the wins, you know, all the Olympic players, you know, all the players who played for her and are now coaches, you know, things like that, everything she's done. And then for her to say that, you know, that about me, it's just, it makes me feel so special. People have heard the story when I got cut, you know, my sixth grade year and, you know, it was, I was heartbroken and, you know, I, I think maybe part of me thought that because I was her son, I might make it, you know, just, just solely on that. And I didn't work as hard as I could have. I, I walk in the room and I said, Tyler, what, what's wrong with you? And he goes, I got cut. Well, my first thought is what coach in East Tennessee would cut my son? I mean, think about it. You know, put him at the end of the bench, but give him a uniform. And then I guess the, the, the coach came out in me, and I looked at Tyler and I said, he was, had a basketball under each arm. He, he was crying so hard. And, uh, and she goes, well, do you think you worked hard enough? And I knew I didn't. I said no. And she said, well, now you know what you got to do. And I was like, you know, I wanted her because I knew she knew everything about basketball. And he goes, Mom, will you help me? I said, son, I will help you, but I will not start your engine. You must start your engine every day. Do you understand that? And he goes, yes, ma'am. So every day, you know, that I wanted her to help me, I would have to go to her. It wouldn't be her pushing me. You gotta be self-motivated, and that's another thing she taught me It's really important. And if you ever saw her coach, you would know she was tough as nails. But at the same time, cared about her players more than anyone could. Here is what she sounded like in the locker room at halftime. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. It's a team that really wants it, that has everybody committed to what they have to do. And we didn't have everybody committed in that first half. Everybody understand that? This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. And you have to know, did I not say we've got to be competitive, right? We gotta have communication, but we must have composure. We didn't have composure all the time. And have a sense of urgency anytime we call something, whether it's press, whether it's offense, whatever we're calling, you got a sense of urgency. You wanna get something done, and you wanna get it done collectively, so all five people have to get where they need to get in a timely fashion, all right? That's what you have to do. And, and, and so no one, no one on the floor has, has any reason to hesitate or not be competitive at that moment. Got me, Dom? Sense of urgency. Every possession. Every possession matters. Take white pride in every possession. It's a game of possessions. It's also a game of wheels. See how tough we are. Her intensity was hard to match, and so was her passion but yet she expected it from all of her players. Anyone like that is bound to make a difference on those around them. And Pat's impact went far beyond women's basketball, reaching those like football player Peyton Manning. During his years at the University of Tennessee, he went to a lot of Lady Vol games. While watching her coach, he developed a respect for her. While this is the story about Pat Summit the coach, it's also about who she was as a person, as a mom, and as a friend. She was an amazing woman on and off the court. Why was it that her character transcended basketball? It was her authenticity. During her time as a coach, she accrued 1,098 career wins, 
the most in women's college basketball history upon her retirement. And she won eight NCAA championships. In the year 2000, she was given her rightful place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. During her time as a coach, she had 161 players coached by her from the University of Tennessee Lady Vols. This was the desire for all the players that came through her program. When they leave here, obviously, they leave here uh, with a college degree. Hopefully, uh, they leave here with a national championship. But the most important part of that is they leave here as confident young women that are ready to go out into the world and, and be secure in who, who they are and move forward and be successful. And when our student athletes leave here, I mean, they're ready for the world. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that they are going to be successful in whatever they do. I know players leave here and they fight, you know, they, they have adversity in their own lives. Maybe some in, in, the, in the pro game, um, you know, dealing with family and family issues. And I think they just, they have a, a preparation that allows them to be able to get through adversity, to be able to understand that you know, it doesn't last forever and you, you have to figure out a way uh, to be successful. In August 2011, Pat Summit announced that she had been diagnosed with early onset dementia, Alzheimer's type. Here she is talking about it with her son. You know, I, I just felt something was different. And, uh, you know, I, at the time I didn't know what I was dealing with. And, and until I went to the Mayo Clinic, I, I couldn't be for sure. But I can remember, you know, you know being trying to, to coach and, and trying to figure out schemes and whatever and I just it just wasn't coming to me like I typically would say oh hey we're going to do this going to run that I think it probably caused me to you know second guess and I know when I was talking with Mickey you know and and I just she said you know what's what's going on with you and I said I don't know you know I don't know and so, you know, I was glad that we went to the Mayo Clinic because, you know, Dr. Peterson was great. They were all great. And at least I knew then, you know, what, what I was dealing with. You know, it's, it's hard to fight an invisible opponent. And I think that now we know what we're up against um, and we're ready. we're ready to take the next chapter in our lives. This would be the new battle she would have to face. And when we come back, more on the life of Pat Summit. And again, she was born on this day in history in 1952. Pat Summit's story, here on Our American Stories. Thank you. 
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the life of Pat Summit. And we learned that in 2011, she was diagnosed with dementia Alzheimer's type. She and her son Tyler set out to fight this terrible disease. And we pick up with faith. Coach Summit finished out the 2011-2012 season, but with her assistant coach Harley Warlick, who has been with her since 1985, doing most of the coaching. Here, Coach Warlick shares one of her favorite stories about the tough head coach Pat Summit. You know, y'all know how intense Pat is. I mean, just off the chain. And uh, we we sent our kids off to a for the summer, and we wanted to, on their own. They had to go work out, and we made sure they they had to get in shape. You have to come back in shape. And some of the kids meant it mean, meant to lose. Back when you could talk about weight, some of them you, you had to lose 10 pounds, 15 pounds. We can't tell them to lose pounds. We just got to tell them to get in shape now. But Pat told this young lady, you know, you got to come, you got to get, you got to get back. You got to lose 15 pounds. It's the bottom line. So um, we all, at the beginning of, um, of the year, we have, we, we meet as a, a staff and a team and, we come in, and uh, right when they go back to school, where well, this young lady came in, and Pat was like, are you kidding me? She goes, get back in my office right now. And so the little girl went back and got in the office, and she sat down, and she goes, what have you been doing? She goes, well, I've been, no, you've been doing nothing. You have been doing nothing. She goes, I, I, what did I tell you before you left? Uh, she, I told you to lose 15 pounds. You're not getting back on the court till you get lose 15 pounds. You got girls like about to bust out crying. She goes, uh, she goes, uh, you, you're just leave, just leave. A kid gets up and leaves, and she's like, goes and gets in, in uh, the team meeting. And Pat calls me in there and she goes, I just chewed so and so out. And I said, really? Okay. So we went back into the meeting. All right. And so we get in the meeting and we go around and tell each other what our the names are and what class you are and. I'm Abby Conklin. I'm a senior, and uh, you know, and I, I'm, and I come up, and this young lady goes, and <laughs> she says, uh, "Hi, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Beth Bartell, and I, I'm a manager, I think." <laughs> and so here's the great part too: as we're going around, Pat all of a sudden got red and just started looking, running over to me, and goes. Oh my God! I just talked to her, and she's a manager. And I went, "What?" And so she says, "Don't tell anybody." So I went, "I won't." Mickey, do you know what Pat did? <laughs> you know what Pat did? So yeah. So if you're going to be a manager, you better get under the weight requirement. Just five years after her diagnosis, Pat Summit passed away. In order to give her all the honor she deserved, a celebration of life for Pat Summit was held on July 16, 2016, where many came to speak about her at the Thompson Bowling Arena, located on the University of Tennessee, the home of Pat's beloved Lady Vols. Holly Warlick, Peyton Manning, and of course her son Tyler all spoke, and a few of her players as well. Her son Tyler spoke first. In front of him was the stool that she would sit on every game. But something that I also want to celebrate tonight is my mom's heart, her enormous heart. And I'm here to tell you that inwardly, behind the scenes, she had three hearts, the heart of a mother, a heart for others, and a heart 
for Jesus Christ. And so let's start with the heart of a mother. I heard three words every single day of my life. I love you. Every day. Didn't matter how busy she was, what she had to do. She took the time to stop and tell me that. And not only did she say it, but she showed it. She walked the talk. You might think that the famous coach, Pat Summit might not have time for the normal parental duties like, let's say, cooking dinner. But I'm here to tell you the majority of my life, I'm talking six or seven nights a week, my mom was home cooking dinner. And her favorite mom story to tell was uh, one time when I was playing soccer um, at halftime, I'd, I ran over to her imaginary stool on the sideline, and I look up and I say, hey, mom, you know, how am I doing? Well, she looked down, and she said, oh, you're doing all right. That's not Pat Summit. So I said, no, come on, mom, how am I doing? And she first took her sunglasses off and got eye level with me. That's when I knew I was in for it. She said, son, you're not being aggressive. Get after the ball. Run after it. Don't be scared to get physical out there. Yes, ma'am. So I run back out there with those six-year-olds. And folks, I was everywhere. I was all over the field. I was knocking people down. So I run back over to my, my coach after the game. And I get some harsh criticism from him as well. And so I'm, I walk back to mom. I said, mom, I'm confused. You know, you tell me to be more aggressive, but my coach tells me I'm playing out of my position. She hadn't realized I was the goalie. <laughs> she wanted to help any and everybody, no matter if she knew the rules or not. And that, that brings me to her second heart, a heart for others. And, and she had, I guarantee you, there are so many people in this building, so many people watching right now that have stories of Pat Summit walking 100 miles an hour and then stopping on a dime to sign an autograph for a little girl, to say thank you to the janitor or the cafeteria worker. That was her heart for others. She had a heart for all of us. She was the strongest person I have ever known or that I ever will know. <clears throat> but a lot of people don't know where that strength came from. Her favorite Bible verse was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. She had a heart for Jesus. One of my favorite memories uh, was back in 2012 when we were baptized together again in front of friends and family. Another example of her faith uh, was in the last few days of her life when I'm sitting there by her side and for a son to hear some come up to her and say, Pat, I love you. Thank you. You brought me closer to God. It's the most incredible feeling a son can ever have for his mother, a child can ever have for a parent. She showed her faith through her actions. And I know in that way, but in so many others, I'm still learning so much from my mom. I still have so much to learn from her. But here's what she would want now for all of us that in some way have been influenced by Pat Summit. She wouldn't just want us to remember her example. She would want us to go out and to follow it. So let's not just 
celebrate her legacy. Let's now carry it on. And what beautiful words. Whenever we can, folks, we love to bring these words straight to you. This is a son talking about his mom, a mom so many Americans knew but didn't know. How many of you knew about her walk as a Christian? I didn't. And by the way, wouldn't we all want to be eulogized by a son or a daughter like this? Proof of a life beautifully lived. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And thanks to Hillsdale, so many of their courses, so much of the coursework is available to this entire country, free and online, for families, for homeschoolers, for adults who never really had the chance to learn the things that they always would have wanted to learn about the Constitution, about American history, about the Greeks, about Plato, C.S. Lewis, Shakespeare, all of it. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. The courses are free. And what you learn, boy, it's invaluable. When we come back, more on the life of Pat Summit, more eulogies, more stories. Here on Our American Stories. return to the story of coach pat summit and we left off with her loved ones sharing their memory of pat at her celebration of life services and we now return to the thompson bowling arena in tennessee where the event took place here tamika catchings who played for the lady falls from 97 to 2001 shared the first time she saw pat I was in eighth grade the first time I came across Pat Summit indirectly. I was sitting at home flipping through the channel, and all of a sudden, I stopped, drawn into an icy blue stare of the one and only. <laughs> I was hypnotized instantly, and for whatever reason, couldn't pull away from the screen. I remember thinking to myself, even then, I just hope I get good enough to play for this lady. The passion, the stare, the determination, the willpower, the fight. That's what I wanted. We can never prepare for a moment like this, although ultimately we know it will come. But I don't know why Pat seemed invincible in every single way. I knew coming to UT that I would be pushed and that I would be challenged, but I believe that all of us Lady Vol welcomed that. And we were all willing to be molded into the people that we are today. Pat was more than our coach. She was our friend. She was our mentor. She was our leader. She was our mother. She was our father. And for me, she was my quiet through my storms. While we didn't speak every day, I knew that she was just a phone call away. When I look out over the sea of our Lady of All family, we are all brought together, joined in unity for this moment because of our wonderful leader, Pat. 
I can't imagine how different our lives would have been if we had chosen anywhere but here. We came here to play ball and to get an education, but we left with so much more. While she valued what we did on the court, she valued even more what we did in the classroom, the community, and ultimately, that we would all individually what we would bring to the world. There have been a lot of tears shed over the past month as we watched our heroes slip away from the earthly realm to the heavenly one. And while it's been tough, the amazing stories that have been shared over the past few weeks have made this celebration a little bit easier. I know Pat is looking down and continues to look down on each of us as we celebrate her life today and what she means and has done for so many of us. She gave us hope. She gave us direction. She gave us a sense of coolness through what we did on and off the court. She was the epitome of what being great is all about. And that bubbled over to us through her expectation for each one of us. We must be great. Standing here today, I go back to the phone call Pat made to me when she was diagnosed with dementia. She said, Ketch, don't be scared. I'm going to fight like none other. Well, through her fight and continuous fight, Pat has showed us how strong to be and how great to be once again. Holly Warlick shares a story of a time that Coach Summit was pulled over by a cop. Pat had a little, had a need for speed. Pat got pulled over a lot. <laughs> I often wondered how did she avoid so many tickets? Well, Pat had a plan. You know, she always had a plan. Well, she started keeping her purse in the trunk. She'd get pulled over, and the officer would say, obviously, can I see your license? Well, officer, let me, my purse is in the trunk. Can I just get out of my car and get it? She gets out, opens her trunk, and there's about a half a dozen basketballs that just so happened to be signed by Pat Summit. <laughs> of course, the police officer would say, can I get one of those autographed balls? And Pat goes, why, of course. And we all know what the next line would, was going to be. Now, you sold down, Miss Pat. All of a sudden, they were on first-name basis. So I started out as a kid from Knoxville, Tennessee, with a dream. My dream, it came true. But I found a coach, a mentor, and a great friend all in one. Pat was gracious. She had an unbelievable sense of humor, and she actually was able to laugh at herself. She was tough but kind, and when she used my last name, Warlick, it was not good. <laughs> Pat had a way of getting everything out of you. Now, I would get in trouble for, it wasn't really bad. I'd get in trouble, and I would, before I'd go into Pat's office, I would say, I'm not saying a word. Well, when I walked in and that door shut, and it's me and Pat Summit, I would sing. She'd go, you, I, know, I already know everything, so you might as well just tell the truth. I know everything you did. I just start singing like a little canary. So much for my, my being able to hold back. Pat enjoyed life, and life loved her back. And Peyton Manning shares his last respects for Pat Summit. Pat Summit didn't just change the history 
of Tennessee basketball or make this arena notable well beyond the borders of this state. She changed the history of the sports she loved and of sports in general. She almost single-handedly made women's sports relevant, well beyond mothers and daughters, sisters and grandmothers. Heck, every Tennessee football player, including me, would have been proud to have been coached by Pat Summit. And when she keynoted the Tennessee annual football spring clinic a number of years ago, Coach David Cutcliffe will tell you that she mesmerized that day a room full of crusty football coaches like no other speaker has done before or since. And when Pat finished, Coach Cut said she got the greatest standing ovation of anyone, including legendary coaches like Bo Beckler and Pat Dye. Nineteen years ago, I came to see Pat Summit deciding whether I should stay for my junior or senior year, and I sat in her office for two hours. She gave me great advice on what she thought I should do. As a coach and as a person, Pat did more than outthink uncertainty and stare down competitors. She stared down doubts. If you were recruited by Pat and her staff, it was like a casting call for greatness. She epitomized the Lady Vols. More than that, and because of her actions, she gave new depth and dimension to the word lady. When I returned to Knoxville throughout the years, or Pat would travel to Indianapolis to see Tamika play for the Indiana Fever, we'd make a point to get together over a steak and a beer. Last summer, I was in Knoxville, and I knew that Pat wasn't doing so well. Coach Fulmer and I decided to drive over to visit our old friend. We knew she probably wouldn't know our names, and she didn't, but that wasn't the point. Pat smiled a lot as we sat and, and spent time with her, and she seemed to just enjoy having our company. We didn't know if it even mattered that we were there, but deep inside, we both hoped it would. Two weeks ago, at Pat's funeral, Shamiqua Holdsclaw and I caught up with each other again. She, like so many of Pat's former players, stayed in close contact with her. Shamiqua told me that even as Pat's memory continued to fade, if Pat saw one of my games or commercials on TV, she pointed at the screen and said, that's my friend. He comes to visit me. There goes my friend. Two weeks ago at her gravesite, the tears rolled down my cheeks. After I left, I got a text from Sally Jenkins that reminded me of Pat's words to anyone in enough agony to come crying to her. With a nudge full of kindness and a move-on mentality, she'd tell them, toughen up, buttercup. <laughs> Just take a look around this room. There are lots of tears, and yes, I feel the sting of my own. So in the spirit of Pat, I'll echo her own words. Toughen up, buttercup. And in saying goodbye for the last time, we can all say, there goes our friend. She left having coached 1,306 games, and her wins off the court include starting the Pat Summit Foundation for Alzheimer's, the foundation to help find a cure for Alzheimer's so that one day no family has to hear that a loved one has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She died 14 days after her 64th birthday in Knoxville, Tennessee, in a senior living facility. She left all her assets to her son, Tyler. And in another way, through her career, she had given everything she had to women's basketball. We end with Pat. 
sharing her best piece of life advice. To look in the mirror and see yourself and challenge yourself to be the very best and to always do the right thing. And again, never compromise your principles, never lower your standards. Whatever it is that you desire to do in life, have the courage and the commitment to do it and to do it to your absolute best. And always, always know that you have to believe it to do it. This is Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. I hope to get good enough to play for this lady, that former player of Pat Summit said. I think we all wish we could have been good enough to play for that lady on the field of life. Toughen up, Buttercup. What a great line. Six miscarriages, folks. Six miscarriages. And the love of her life, Tyler. Well, it just proves that with perseverance, anything is possible. The life of Pat Summit, told here on Our American Stories.